So, gents, I'm curious. What was the first movie you remembered being wowed by? I guess it's a pretty easy one for me. It was pretty foundational. Made me really, um... My mom talks about all the time how uh, I saw it, and I kind of, like, would direct her, and, like, when we would recreate the movie, um... You know, I'd do my little doodles and, like, write sequels or whatever to it, and, uh, it was Ghostbusters. You know, she had the... We had the VHS tape, and she would play it for me, and I would just want to watch it all the time, and it just blew my little head up, and, um, it set me down the path of being a surf for the rest of my life, so... Yeah, Ghostbusters really was that first movie for me that really um, unlocked something in my brain. If we're talking stuff we watched at home, for me, it's probably Beauty and the Beast. That's a movie that I remember, you know, we were asked in in college once, uh, what's the first shot you remember noticing in a movie? And for me, like, I remember that even as a little kid, the, the ballroom scene with the camera panning around them felt very much, I, I felt the presence of a camera. You know, the camera stood out to me as a character, even as, like, a a four-year-old. But if we're talking theatrically, uh, you know, like, remember sitting in my seat and being blown away, um, I feel like part of me wants to say Phantom Menace, because I was a kid and that movie was so dazzling, but I think because I knew what that franchise was already, uh, you know, I expected it a bit. The one that really sticks out to me of just a moment that I remember being young and sitting in a theater and having that feeling of, oh, movies can do this. Like, not just I've never seen a movie do this before, but I did not think it was possible for a movie to do this before, um, was Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. 2001 was a, 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 you know, people talk about 99 is a great year for movies, and it was. Um, but a lot of those movies were not movies made for us. Phantom Menace was. Stuart Little, Pokemon, the first movie were. But, you know, like, kids were not, you know, people our age were not seeing Being John Malkovich or anything like that. But 2001 was a year that gave us Chris Columbus's Sorcerer's Stone, Shrek, Spirited Away, like it just the possibilities were suddenly infinite for a young person sitting down in the theater. And, you know, move, the other movies like, you know, Tommy mentioned Ghostbusters, some of those 80s films and, and those Disney films, you know, I inherited from older people. I, I, I grew up with them. But Lord of the Ring, Fellowship of the Ring was the first time that I remember sitting in a seat in a theater, having a moment and knowing that that was mine. You know, yeah. I was not getting the secondhand experience of somebody else going to the theater and seeing Superman, the movie for the first time. I got to have that. I got to be a part of that moment of seeing something new. And so that, that sticks out to me. That was, that's the moment I remember of like, and that's that rush I've been chasing ever since. Of I wanting moment where I sit down in the seat in a cinema and the lights go down and something happens. And I feel like, wow, we can do that. If we're talking about first theatrical, it's uh, it's a long, long time in my life before I have one of those because I didn't go to the movies often. My family was not um, particularly well off with money. My dad always worked and my mom didn't drive. So I really had no way of getting to movies and just um, with the money issue. So it wasn't really till late in high school that I really started doing that and getting to movies on my own and seeing stuff. And the first one that I remember sitting down in the theater and just getting mind fucked by, and I saw it like 10 times in theaters that summer, was The Dark Knight. I mean, that was like The Lord of the Rings for you. It was that movie of just like, oh, wow, this must be what people felt like when they saw Jaws or Star Wars or Indiana Jones or, you know, what, you know the rest of my goddamn generation felt when they saw Lord of the Rings in theaters. But I just remember seeing that and being like, oh, wow, this is, 
this is something new and something uh, I'm just kind of like transcendent. And it, yeah, I mean, I'm always searching for stuff like that in um, the theaters now. And The Dark Knight was the first time I really felt that. And it was great. Help me, Patrick Cotner. You're my only hope. Because we need to talk 1977 Star Wars here on You're Missing Out with special guest Patrick Cotner. Our guest today has worked on The President's Show and The Chris Gethard Show. He is currently the producer and one of the stars now of the George Lucas Talk Show. That's every Sunday on Planet Scum Live. Patrick Kotner is here, and he's going to be talking Star Wars with us. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Of course. Any any excuse for me to go rant about Star Wars is a good excuse. You don't have enough uh, excuses, I guess. No, I don't. I don't. Never enough. I do want to say, to your credit, I sent you the list of available films, and you gave me a number of, of films that you were you were down to talk about. Yeah. But uh, I figure that it's not just that you like Star Wars, you work on a show about Star Wars, but you are so now immersed in this yeah uh, this this world, and not just the film itself, but the behind the scenes and all that. Uh, you know, uh, if you, if you're a fan of George Lucas talk show, it's gotten to the point where where there's certain bits of trivia that we all now know that no one else would uh, would care about. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, I I know what the stained glass in the Skywalker Ranch library looks like better than I know uh, most real places I've been. <laughs> but uh, I've obviously been a big fan of of George Lucas talk show and Chris Gethard show for a long time, and. Uh, I actually was fortunate enough to moderate a discussion with you guys uh, recently at a at a panel, uh, which was very fun about how you guys do that show. Yeah, that was super fun. I was glad I was glad you were the one to do it rather than someone who uh, didn't know anything about the show. You know, I I was very terrified to do it because I thought that uh, when they approached me and said, "We well, can you do this?" I was like, "Oh, are they going to think I'm some kind of weird creep?" Uh, so you know, I'm glad that no, yeah. not at all. I mean, we we traffic in weird creeps, so it's okay. I, uh, I I will also say that I did, I had always had picked out for you a different film that I had set aside when I knew we were doing the show, we were doing the National Film Registry. I thought to myself, oh, Patrick is a huge Muppet movie fan. True. And he talks about it quite a bit. And I was like, that's it. I'll just, you know what? I'll bring him on for Muppet movie. And then I did the math <laughs> of if this show is weekly yeah. and it keeps going through the induction years. Uh, it'd be like 10 years before we get to Muppet movies. I'm like, oh, maybe we should do something sooner. So <laughs> happy to, happy to come back in 10 years when we're all definitely. Uh, yeah. still alive. I was, I was waiting for you to drop like a curveball and be like, you know, the movie I set aside for Patrick was intolerance. Yeah. We, we talked about that when we were discussing this. I said to him, that's no one's uh, weirdly, no one's biting at that one. So. <laughs> Someone's got to dive on that grenade at some point, but uh, I haven't. I haven't seen intolerance, but I've taken so many film classes in high school and college that I've seen birth of a nation more times than anyone should and i don't understand why they show it in every class oh yeah no yeah we're the same way we've seen it uh way too often and uh when will we get to that is that season two season three season three season yeah. three. so we got a while and thankfully no hot button controversial films coming up for us i'm sorry what's the episode we're recording on thursday gone with the wind great oh awesome. sure, cool sure. Be fun. Be fun. Why, is there a problem um, with that yeah no i haven't been i'm not that online is there a problem <laughs> Um, I do want to, if, if it's okay, Patrick, because you mentioned film school, can we take a minute and just talk about how you got into this industry and what you, uh, what you do? Because people might not realize maybe if they're only tuning into George Lucas talk show now that you were always a behind the scenes person on that show, a producer, a talent booker, 
And if you could kind of walk us through like how you got there and your history in the, the industry, that would be kind of. Yeah. I mean, the quick history is I went to Pace uh, University in New York, which is sort of like NYU's like lesser cousin. Um, not as, not as great. It was fine, but it was not that fun. Uh, but I mostly went there so I could be in the city and do, uh, entertainment industry kind of thing. So I, I interned a ton, uh, while I was in school, I was at like Sesame street and SNL and above average and like a bunch of really cool rad places. And that led, uh, pretty quickly to me going to UCB and to the Gethard show, um, just as a fan. And this was when it was on public access. So I, Went to Gethard Show for like five or six weeks. And then weirdly, it was the kind of show where you could be like, hey, I want to work on this show. And they would be like, yeah, sure. Okay, sounds good. So I started working on that. I worked through the majority of the public access run. It was all but like the first 10 episodes or something like that. Um, doing different things. I was like in charge of the audience and running camera and helping with guests. And like there was so many, everyone sort of did everything on that show. And I stuck with that through college, got through college, and that ended up going to cable right when I got out of school, pretty much. And I was working as like the production coordinator on that. But then around the same time as it got picked up to cable, I started booking the show ASCAT that was at UCB. It was one of their long running like Sunday night big shows, um, which was it was like an improv show where we would bring in uh, celebs to come in and tell stories. And then they would do like improv based off of the stories. And we're really lucky. Like I got a lot of cool people, Mark Hamill and Alan Alda and Meredith Vieira and like Kevin Bacon and just like an insane amount of people. And I did it for six years or so. So it was just like hundreds of people would come and do that show. And while I was doing that, I ended up started booking the Ether show and started doing like a bunch of other things that sort of led off from that. Uh, and booking sort of became my thing, even though it wasn't really what I expected that I would be doing. And yeah, it's I mean, it's just been a fun, weird thing. And I knew Connor on the who does the Lucas show through the Ether show and through UCB. And when he started, he uh, uh, I came to the first episode and there was like 10 people in the audience. There was nobody there. And he said to me, he was like, hey, my warm-up comic dropped out. They didn't show up. Uh, there's five minutes until the show. Can you do warm-up for the show? And I'm not a comedian. I'm not a performer. Like, I haven't performed since high school. And I was like, yeah, I guess. So that led to me, like, basically starting off the first George Lucas talk show before Connor even came out. And then I kind of worked on that for a long time, you know, booking it and helping him run it. And it was, it's been really fun and really rewarding experience and now that it's like kind of the only thing besides my day job that I have going for me during this it's become such a big part of my life and I'm happy that people you know across the country and around the freaking world can see it now and it's it's a very different thing now but I I, I like it and now you just to, I'm gonna give a quick background for people listening who might not know the George Lucas talk show is it's a it's a started out as a show at the UCB every month now it's a weekly show online, and it's, uh, you mentioned Connor Ratliff, uh, who puts on the persona of George Lucas, director and creator of Star Wars, now retired, and uh, his co-host is, at this point, uh, Watto, the, uh, a, character who appears, a character who appears in Phantom Menace, which is the prequel to uh, Star Wars, and now you have actually joined the show, not just as a producer, but as a character yeah. in the show that is... Yeah. Uh, I, I started out as yourself and has now become a, a become an exaggerated a, version of yourself, I guess. Yeah, it's its own it's its own beast at this point. It wasn't something I was planning on. It just sort of happened. Um and uh they they forced it upon me, but I'm I'm having fun with it and I think people like the three of us together. So it's been it's been a good time. I mean it's 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 great. I can I can tell you that uh, you know, when we got questions for the the panel, the I would say the second 
most amount of questions were directed at you. Yeah. The, the the first most were a lot of people asking questions about Griffin's podcast, Blank Check, and I decided sure. it'd be fun for me if I ignored every one of those <laughs> and and instead asked you about sausages in your fridge. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how there's a guy playing George Lucas and a guy playing a CGI character, and I've somehow become the weirdest character on the show. <laughs> now, this is a thing, and I guess part of the reason I'm prefacing this too is, is weirdly... We have show we have movies on this list and particularly in future installments, future seasons that are difficult to talk about in terms of like, well, how do you fill an hour to talk about Edison's Newark athlete or or Fred Ott's sneeze? In this case, I feel like Star Wars is a difficult movie to talk about, not because it's problematic or not because there's nothing to talk about, but because it has so saturated the culture and we are so immersed in it that. At least for me, I know when I was watching it again to take notes, you know, and I have plenty of notes for this. Um, you know, you do kind of find yourself going, oh, but people already know this. People already know that. Like, it, we're so ingrained in it. So what I want to do is I want to start this off by reading what the registry says for why it was inducted. And then uh, we'll get into why, what it means to each of us and why we think it has value. So the registry statement is a legendarily expansive and ambitious start to the saga set in a galaxy far, far away. Director George Lucas opened audiences' eyes to the possibilities of successful science fiction movies using special effects that are effective and intelligently integrated with the story. Young Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, is thrust into the struggle of the Rebel Alliance when he meets the wise Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness. Obi-Wan begins training Luke as a Jedi Knight to combat the opposition, and the two head off and join mercenary Han Solo, Harrison Ford, on a daring mission to rescue the beautiful Rebel leader Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, from the clutches of the evil empire. Luke proves that he does indeed possess mystical powers known as the Force, which he invokes to destroy the Empire's dreaded Death Star. Now, this is a weird one because we've encountered this in our show. Every once in a while, the registry statement for why it's inducted is just a plot synopsis. <laughs> it doesn't give you much to go off of. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there is something to... It becomes, in a way, and, and this is what I'm hoping we can get into, it becomes, in a way, almost difficult to discuss Star Wars because it's, it is so, so much a part of our culture and it is so pivotal that. You know, if somebody came to you and said, you know, uh, why is Casablanca great? You know, you've got some answers ready. If somebody goes, well, why is Star Wars great? You, you can't help but go, it's it's fucking Star Wars. Like, it's yeah. there. It's, you know, it exists. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, obviously, how what is your relationship to Star Wars? Like, are you when when did you first see it? If you remember first seeing it or is it something that's always been with you? I think probably the first time I really saw it, I must have seen it before this, but this is the first time I remember seeing it, was the special edition re-releases in theaters. I remember everything surrounding it, going to Taco Bell and getting all the toys and like, you know, uh, all the, the, when they started relaunching all the merch with the Powers of the Force action figures and just like the big hype around everything coming back in 97. I, I remember that being the first time, but I know I must have seen it before that at some point. My... My aunt was really into it when she was a kid, so my grandma still had all of her toys and books and stuff, so it was kind of always like an ever-present thing in my life, because whenever I would go over to my grandma's house, my aunt had kept all of her Star Wars stuff and Muppets stuff and, like, everything like that, so, like, all of these childhood <laughs> interests were just imprinted on me so young that they, you know, they're still there today, uh, which is wild, but that's the first time I remember it, and I recently... I was like digitizing all of our family um, uh, home movies. And it was so funny watching the like Christmas of 97, just getting boxes and boxes and boxes of Star Wars stuff. And I was so freaking excited 
and it was just so interesting and like funny to see that like the stuff I was getting then I'm like, yeah, I'd still be excited about that now. <laughs> now, Tom, I, before I, Tom, what about you? Were you always, I mean, you know, for the sake of our audience, were you always a Star Wars person? Did you grow up with them? What was your, well, um, uh, you know, my family's not the biggest, um, movie people in the world. So, you know, they, you know, they didn't dislike movies. They'd show me movies. Um, but they weren't really nerds, so they weren't like they didn't, you know, they didn't like Star, they didn't hate Star Wars, but it wasn't in our house. But I remember um, the re-releases. My aunt took me to see Return of the Jedi because I guess it, I must have seen A New Hope and Empire on TV, and then she was just like, "Well, Return of the Jedi is playing," so she took me. And then I guess about a month or two later, it was my birthday, and my uncle got me the um, the uh, the trilogy VHS set. And yes, I mean, I guess. Around seven, six, seven, I started getting into Star Wars pretty big, um, and then you know we we the the prequel came out in ninety nine, and um, it felt more like it. Uh, Star Wars was all around a lot more in ninety nine than it, than beforehand. You know, I feel like because it's funny, you, this registry is nineteen eighty nine. You know, there was no Star Wars things like. We kind of take for granted that there was a time where there was nothing Star Wars coming out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I kind of just got into it then. And, um, yeah, then there was that blank period between Revenge of the Sith and when Disney bought it. And uh, I kind of put it to the side for a bit. And then the Disney stuff brought me back. And now I watch an episode of Clone Wars every morning. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I'm I'm still pretty much into Star Wars, even though um, uh, I watched The Rise of Skywalker kill my parents uh, seven months ago. All right, so I mean, for me, I it's the thing I I always grew up with. I mean, I, I agree with Patrick. I, I had a similar thing of remembering to remembering seeing the re-releases. Uh, this will come as no surprise to Tom, but my father is is quite the Star Wars fan, and oh, uh, oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and a, and a big collector um so we've always had the toys have always been present um and i feel like one thing that that is a little uh, i'm almost a little sad about is the fact that i have no memory of seeing these films for the first time like yeah. i remember going to the theater and seeing the re-releases but even then in my kid brain i'm just like yes of course and now luke's gonna blow up the desert like i knew it so well because there were certain movies that i saw ever since a young age a star the Star Wars trilogy and the other one is is uh, Tim Burton's Batman in 89 which is uh definitively the first film I ever saw cuz it was Im- almost immediately after I was born playing on HBO and my dad used to just sit with his newborn son and watch it so uh you know Patrick your friend Robert Wool is one of the first uh faces I ever saw as a as my a living being my yeah a good friend Robert Wool so I don't remember that I did have the fortune this past year of of watching the films anew in terms of my significant other had never seen any star wars films she just wasn't exposed to them and with rise of skywalker coming out i was like we're gonna watch all of them we're just gonna watch them back to back we're gonna give you that experience and getting to watch them through a new pair of eyes is 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 a very exciting experience um because you kind of forget in a way how much magic these movies have particularly that first film because as Star Wars fans and lifelong Star Wars fans, you, you feel like you encounter a lot of people talking about what is or isn't Star Wars. What is what Star Wars is supposed to be or what Star Wars is supposed to do and all that. And you forget how exciting it is 
especially with this first film, we're going to talk about of the the infinite possibilities that this has that you really don't know what could happen around any. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is kind of funny that we all have that feeling of like, well, yeah, it. We saw it. Do you remember the first time? Not really. It was always there. Yeah. And then you know you kind of meet, you know with Mike's girlfriend because we're so entrenched in the shit. It is kind of funny to meet somebody and be like, oh, that's right, this shit isn't important to everybody. Yeah, I I mean, Patrick, you deal with that with your show with George Lucas Talks. I mean, a lot of the times when you're booking guests, you're booking people who, in some cases, haven't seen any Star Wars at all. And I know that when I started taking my uh, my girlfriend, as Thomas mentioning, when I started taking her to George Lucas Talks, she at that point had not seen any yeah of the films and was uh you know a little confused by by Watto um but for sure what what is that like for you i mean look we're all big movie nerds and pop culture nerds here in in a million different directions um what what is that like uh you know that interaction with people who kind of seem very adamant of no i'm avoiding this major pop culture thing yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. It's always interesting to to see people like that because it's been such a thing that has permeated the culture. And the excuse, the uh, uh, not the excuse, the example that we always used or that we used to use was Nicole Byer when she came on the show probably, I don't know, geez, four years ago, maybe now, five years ago. And she had never seen a Star Wars movie, but we asked her to describe the movie that she thought it was. Like, you know, what have you gleaned from just living on this earth? And she got it like, 70% correct. So I think the people that even haven't seen it, they get, you know, they know about the Death Star and they know what a lightsaber is. Like, it, I feel like it's so rare where you meet someone where you're like, who is this? And it's Yoda. And they're like, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, it, everyone knows who the thing is, even if they haven't been fully exposed to the movie. It's been, I like getting people on the show who don't know anything because you sort of do get that wild look of wonder in their eyes of like, what the hell is this that I'm doing right now? Like, what are these people? What are they talking about? It's kind of almost more fun than uh, getting someone who knows everything about it because Griffin and I have very deep knowledge bases of very specific Star Wars things. Connor has a pretty good working knowledge of it and knows a lot about some things, but there's a lot, like, he's never seen The Clone Wars. He probably will never watch the Clone Wars. He's never read any of the expanded universe stuff. He's never played any of the video games. Like he just doesn't know about that stuff. Um, so he, I think, has less fun when we get people who know "quote unquote" everything about Star Wars because they'll be like, "Well, what about Asajj Ventress?" And he will have to just bullshit his way out of being like, "Oh yeah, you know, she's not in any of the movies." Like he'll just make something up because he doesn't know what they're talking about. And it's a fun trick to watch if you do watch the show to be like, I don't think he knows what they're talking about right now. <laughs> like, I think I think people will have fun looking for that now that they know that little secret. Oh, it's I mean, that's that's one of those things, you know, not to get too off track. But as somebody who's I'm a big fan of Connors, we're, we're hopefully uh, having him on the show soon. He's picked out yeah. a film and all. Uh, but it is kind of fun where you mentioned somebody brings up Asajj Ventress and, and yeah. George seems very detached. But then George seems seemingly has a big in-depth knowledge of Karl Barks comics. Yeah. Yes. You know, but, and other idiosyncratic yeah. interests. Yeah. I mean, he's also, um, he refuses to learn. <laughs> That's the other thing. <laughs> I'll be like, you should watch this. You should really watch this. It would help you. And he'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. All right. Fine. Griffin and I will pull that. That's okay. <laughs> but so I do think there's something, you know, to what you were saying about how it's saturated the culture so much and that yeah. people still, still seem to know it. 
there is something so interesting about this film. If we can just get, you know, if we can just take a moment and just focus on the original film, which yep. George in the commentary on the Blu-ray maintains was always supposed to be called episode four. Yeah, sure. I, I don't yeah, know. I don't, I don't believe it. I, I don't know how I don't, much I buy that. No, yeah. I don't. That's, that's the thing. Like uh, watching this movie, uh, you know, with all this stuff in hindsight now, and then you just sit down and watch it on its own. You just watch it and go, no, I don't believe this hype that he had all this stuff planned out, that there was this big like thing going on. He planned two more movies and it was supposed to be episode four. And then he was going to do a prequel trilogy. I don't, I, I think that's a little um, incorrect on George's part. I also don't think we'll ever know the truth on that. So it's one of those yeah. things where I'm like, I don't know. Sure, George, whatever you want to say. In the commentary, he says something that I do believe. I believe that he intended for this to be called Episode 4 only insofar as he says, I loved all those old movie serials like Flash Gordon and all that, and I wanted it to feel like you got dropped in the middle of a serial, sure. which is kind of what they do with Indiana Jones, you know, and I, I buy that. Well, but it yeah. does, isn't, it, know, um, isn't it a thing that, like, there was only one day when it was released and it was just Star Wars, but then, like, the next day they had new prints with Episode 4 on it? Or am I, like, I misremembering something? I don't, I don't think episode four showed up until, like, the 19... This makes me sound like a freaking nerd. It was, like, the 1980 or 81 re-release or something like okay. that. Okay, yeah, because I, re- I, I feel like I remember one of these people I follow talking about, like, they saw it so many times, and then there was just one time where, like, the title was different. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I may be misremembering how quick the turnaround was, but I can maybe understand that, yeah, maybe the episode four thing he was, like, planning to do, and then they just, like... When they saw how big it was, they were just like, ah, eh, fuck it. Yeah, let them change it to episode four or whatever. Yeah. Now, I usually I usually stick to facts, but I do want to tell you my headcanon, which is that my headcanon is George did want it to say episode four. And then when Brian De Palma was writing the uh, opening crawl, he went to Brian and went, just put episode four up top. And De Palma just looked him dead in the eye and said, I'm not doing that. No, <laughs> we're not doing this. That, that's mackerel. the version. That's I, the version I, I want to believe. I just looked it up. It was 1981 when they re-released okay. it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, um, you know, it, it is funny. You bring up the Palma that we take it for granted now, but in 77, this was not like a guaranteed thing. And that no. other than Spielberg, all of the other film brats were kind of like, yeah, this is kind of stupid and it's bad and it's going to fail. Like there's even yeah. like the story of Lucas saying, I showed them the film and De Palma was just laughing the entire time watching the movie. Yeah. There's the story that we all know that, I mean, I guess we all know that um, Spielberg was so confident it was going to be a hit that they traded um, residual rights between this and Close Encounters. And that's why Spielberg still makes like a million dollars a year off of this freaking movie. There was a time where Star Wars wasn't not just a cultural dominating force but was like maybe this is going to be a train wreck that destroys a once promising filmmaker's career and in a way it was it i would argue it sort of did did destroy his once oh yeah it did it did there's no question about that i because i actually i loved i've i've watched now george's early like experimental short films yeah and you just kind of wonder like oh this is he's so weird it's yeah. it's so weird and esoteric and out there and i wish i could see more but what i do love is is there's kind of a a myth around star wars even in what tom was saying about you know how it could have been a great failure and it could have but we kind of in the in the shorthand version of the star wars story uh that we know people kind of make it sound as though nobody was doing science fiction yeah that science fiction was dead in the ground and then he just made 
you know, he took a big risk on a sci-fi movie and it, you know, and succeeded in spite of everything. But what's interesting is when you actually look at it, it wasn't like no one was making science fiction. I mean, Logan's Run came out the year before. Zardoz had already happened. Like movies that we look at it and we think of, we think of these movies as trying to rip off Star Wars or trying to build off Star Wars and they had already happened. Yeah. Well, I think that's... um I think that's yeah they was I mean yeah clearly they were still making sci-fi movies but I think it's that sort of feeling that almost like when Psycho came out it's like yeah they're making horror movies but they don't make them like like big event like real filmmakers are making them we're giving them a budget we're doing some you know like Logan's Run was like kind of a yeah I mean here's this guy he's kind of blew his shot after being in Cabaret and can't really make anything anymore so here's this and you know here's sean connery running around in a bikini because i don't know john borman's doing a lot of drugs or something but star wars was coming i I just feel like star wars was coming at a time where yeah we make sci-fi movies but we don't really care about them well i i think that i think there's that but i also think there's an element with this where it's made with the thing that i notice especially watching it again uh because i just watched it last night again to take notes for this and the thing you really come to appreciate is, you know, I don't think it's a case of like, oh, movies like this weren't given budgets or anything like that. But it's the the level of care and attention that is put into every detail of this. Sure. Um, I mean, the the you know, we always talk about and people always talk about the, the idea of the used universe that Lucas really harps on, you know, that everybody else was making bright white walls and all that. And, and this there's so much texture. It's such a tactile movie to watch. Uh, that you really just feel the 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 attention to detail that went into every element of this world, and I think that's what makes it that, like Patrick was saying, you know, talking about the 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 you know, expanded universe and things like that. There is so much there to draw from and to to play yeah. around with. Well, um, it's it's just the, it's that one idea that's like it's so simple that everyone in Hollywood must have just been like, oh fuck, why didn't I think of that? Just make it look lived in. Like it, it's it, it's crazy that it took that long for someone to just be like, well, you know, people live in these in these worlds. It would look kind of lived in. Can't we like you know do that? And it adds that character. So you know, Which it's is, again, yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating that that was such a big takeaway for so many people with those movies. And then when you go and look at uh, so much of the, I mean, not to, I'm not a prequel basher. I really truly enjoy most of the prequel like i was the perfect age when those things came out so like it really i think it hits me in a way differently than it hits a lot of other people um but he loses a lot of that like a lot of this stuff is so squeaky clean in the prequels and that's a bummer you know like uh even i don't know a lot of the ships uh they feel so brand new and like if you just gave them a little bit of a dirt a dirt uh, uh, paint job on it. I think it would change so much of it. And I, I truly think it would improve those movies a lot. Especially just on the prequels thing, like in episode two, where he's like, where Obi-Wan's going to like the dirty Noir diner to go like find out yeah. where Django Fred's from. It's like, it's supposed to be a rundown place, but it still looks like Apple's version of what a diner would look like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, it's I, going back to the thing. I think, you know, Star Wars probably destroyed a once promising filmmaker's uh, directorial abilities. I mean, yeah, the thing it with is, it, I it is also interesting. Sorry, Mike. Um, it is no, interesting. Uh, I don't know. A lot of his other stuff, I don't super connect with. 
which I've always found fascinating. Like, American Graffiti has never really been my bag, and THX is like, it is what it is, but it's not something I go back and watch all the time. So when you say, or when people in general say that it's a very promising filmmaker, it's like, yes, but I don't know how much other stuff the general public would have enjoyed. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? That's that's 100%. And, and I think it's interesting because it kind of makes you wonder... You know, if Star Wars was his uh, his blank check movie, that made so much money. Yeah. What would he have done with sure. the blank check that that gave him? I mean, this is the maniac who wanted to film Apocalypse Now in Vietnam. Yes. You know, yes. this is what kind of weird shit would he have done? I'm, I I will say I really like American Graffiti. Um, I don't like THX 1138 that much, but I do love the short that it's based on Electric Labyrinth. I, I yeah. love that very much. It's interesting you mentioned American Graffiti. I was watching the deleted scenes from Star Wars that they have on the, the Blu-ray collection. Yeah, yeah. Which, fairly surprisingly, that Blu-ray collection they put out of the, the Skywalker saga before we had the three new movies in the Skywalker saga, yes. um, the, that they put out kind of sparse on the special features, which is also surprising real, considering... Yeah, it's a real bummer. I, I wish... I mean, I know why they do it. They do it so you buy the next version, then you buy the next version, but they haven't really come out with a great version of them yet. And it's such a shame because so many solid uh, making of feature, like hour-long features that were like aired on TV in the 70s and stuff. And it would be so rad if they would just put them on there. Uh, even, even there was stuff on DVDs that like didn't get ported over to the Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like every release since, like, the original Laserdiscs have been, like, less and less and less detailed. I mean, because I just got the the 4K set with all of the new ones, with everything from Episode 1 to 9. And, yeah, the 4K quality looks good, and, you know, there's some special features there, but, I mean, it, it would be easy to, like, hit Disney with this. Like, oh, Disney's trying to double dip, but, like... It was like it before... This has just been... Yeah, it was like yeah. it before Disney, and also Disney hasn't really actually been, like, constantly re-releasing the Star Wars movies. It's just yeah. been, like, they released the new ones when they came out, they released this 4K set, and that's yeah. kind of it. So it's not, it's, it almost feels like this sense of just, I don't know, like, I don't, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I can't even pinpoint why they just don't do it. It's, it's odd, but, I mean, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's very strange, like, it's, it's kind of a thing... I almost feel like the, it, I, this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but and I'll get back to why I was talking about the release. It's going to sound like a weird comparison, um, but I feel like the the best thing to compare the phenomenon of the response to and talking about and even what makes it special uh, of Star Wars, I kept thinking about James Joyce's Ulysses. <laughs> um, oh, right, sure. like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, hear me <laughs> out because it's one of those things where people like. People know Ulysses is Ulysses. They don't may not know what it's about. They most you know, there's a lot of people who haven't read it. They have no sense. Of, but you know what it is and you know the reputation it has. But even when you talk to people who have read it and who love it, I mean, when I was when I was over in Dublin, there were people who were, you know, Joyce scholars over there and you would just bring up Ulysses. And it was kind of a thing that everybody in the room just went, well, of course, it is what it is. Like, yeah. we know what it is. and It is what it is. And there is so much to dig into with that novel and there's so much to dig into with that film and yet you almost feel like it's a weird thing where you kind of want to know how they did every single special effect in those movies the same way that to me like 
I could pick up an annotated Ulysses and see footnotes for every single sentence of why Joyce chose this and what this is a reference to and what this pulls from. But when you're actually talking about it, it does kind of feel like you're spoiling how a magic trick is done, you Mm. know? And to the Ulysses comparison, part of it is the appeal of Ulysses, which is now held up as this big intellectual thing, but was, you know, kind of, uh, it was, it was a thing made for literary nerds. It was made Mm -hmm. by a literary nerd for literary nerds. And every chapter is parodying a different literary style and every sentence, like, you know, as you're reading it, you, you essentially need an encyclopedia next to you to kind of get, okay, why is he talking about Rose of Castile? What is this? Oh, it was an opera, but it was an opera that was only produced in Dublin. And Star Wars is a populist Ulysses of cinema in a way, because as much as people talk about it changing cinema and... You know, if you didn't see the movie and if you didn't know why, you would assume, oh, it was this totally new idea that existed in a vacuum. And it's, in fact, the opposite of that. It is a movie that works because it is made by someone who is so entrenched in the history of cinema that every single element is just being drawn from a different aspect. You know, it's easy to kind of just do the broad things and go, oh, well, it's combining a a samurai movie and a fantasy movie and a Western and all that. But even the little things, it's so entrenched that you really could make a full annotated encyclopedia of just where every single element is coming from and what it's a reference to. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, to to justify my potentially pretentious comparison, like I kept thinking of that in terms of actually, <laughs> I kept thinking of that in terms of like that there is so much to get into of where each little moment comes from, I, and I think that's part of the appeal and why it works. I mean, we're talking about a movie that in this first induction year in 1989, they could pick 25 films from the entire history of cinema, and the only criteria was was it be American and it be at least 10 years old. And this is the newest film that they picked that year. You know, 1977 to 1989, it's only 12 years. And other than that, the most recent ones were The Learning Tree in 1969, Doctor Strange 11 64, and then, you know, you're already into the 50s. But there was such an urgency, such an undeniability to kind of go, this is it. This is the film that is, and I think in part, that's because it is so rooted in the history of cinema, you know. Sure. Sorry if that was just a tirade for anyone anyone else but uh, i I I think that that's i think let's wrap it up right there i think you covered it all (laughs) no um but i but i mean there is something to i i guess i get frustrated because i mean i don't know what your experience was like in film school yeah patrick but at least tom and i like star wars was kind of treated i mean we were in film school during the i think we went to school around the same time maybe not the exact same years and we were in school during the rise of the superhero movie and a great a great a great period in history well, you know, I mean, even that, like, we talked to, we just had somebody on for High Noon uh, a little yeah. while ago, and we were talking about how, for all the people, all the people that we went to school with and all the professors we had who were like, ah, oh, God, Star Wars ruined movies, and now superheroes ruined movies, you know, nobody makes westerns or noir anymore, and meanwhile, you go back and look at the reviews of that time, and they're just like, oh, yeah. more cowboy movies for idiots, you know, where's the real drama? Yeah. I I read a Sergio Leone bi- biography last year, and um, they were detailing how many spaghetti westerns Italy was making. And yeah. these movies, for, for a good port, would get brought over here on 42nd Street or whatever, drive-ins. 
there was there were years where they were making 150 spaghetti westerns in one year. And yeah, and so, you know, I mean, you know, who remembers most of those? Yeah. yeah. I mean, who remembers all of these, you know, I'm a Blu-ray collector and I see all these Blu-ray boutique labels like, "Oh, yeah. Noir Box number 5." And I'm like, "What the fuck are these movies? Who talks about yeah. these?" Like, I'm glad they yeah. exist cuz I I'm all about preservation, but it's also like, "Jesus Christ, they really did just crank these goddamn movies out." Yeah. Yeah. And and with Star Wars, what's so fascinating is, again, Patrick, I don't know what your experience is like. For us, like, the professors we had were often very dismissive of, of those kind of movies, and particularly very dismissive of Star Wars and, and yeah. how it was kind of seen as populist crap. Um, and, and it ruined the, the golden age of Hollywood and the studio brats and all that. But what I think is so interesting is I'm, I'm almost surprised by that reaction because especially this first film, Star Wars itself, because it is so drawing from everything from film serials to mm-hmm. propaganda films to Westerns, it should be such a movie lover's movie. You sure. know? So like because you can point to it and go, well, of course, this is from, you know, the Dam Busters and this comes from yeah. Triumph of the Will. What was your reaction like in in terms of in terms of, you know, being a Star Wars fan, but also studying film. Did you have something yeah, similar? I'm, or was trying it- to, I'm trying to remember if any teachers like talked smack about it. And maybe I just blocked it from my mind. But I guess I was also kind of... The time when I was going to school was pre-Disney sale and post-prequels. So like it wasn't super high in my mind. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about it a lot, but I also, I didn't, I went to school for film and screen studies was the name of the major. So it was a lot more writing about film than like production stuff. And I didn't really care about, I didn't really care about the criticism as much as that major wanted me to, if that makes sense. And I always hated the pretentiousness of all the teachers and all the students. So I think if they had said something like that, I would have dismissed it instantly. Yeah, I I remember just mainly them because we were a lot more about production. There was this pretentious feeling that there was a lot of these people that wanted to be filmmakers looking down their noses at the the movie that made money and we need to make this, you know, brilliant art about, you know, tortured, you know, souls living in yeah. misery or some nonsense and I'm pretty sure Mike could vouch for this. There was one class where it's like, oh, pitch your thing and blah, 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 and talk about yourself and say who your favorite director is. And everyone was going up. Uh, oh, Fellini, blah, 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 this guy, that guy. And I'm the one jerk off that went up and like, yeah, my favorite's John Carpenter. Yeah. And everyone yeah. just kind of looked at me like, ew. Like, yeah. screw you, man. Halloween's more influential than most of the shit you guys watch. Which is such a shame because, like, the wor- I think one of the worst things about film criticism is that elitist level of like oh you're awful because you like that one thing where it's like no chill out man there's so many different kinds of movies people can like this kind of thing and like the reason i like star wars is not because it's a great story i mean it is but it's not what i'm watching that movie for i'm watching it because it's so impressive on every technical level and i like the behind the scenes story and i like how they made it and i like knowing all the little tidbits about you know every single little piece of it and i'm not watching it because i'm like oh, this stands among the pillars of film history, you know, like all that bullshit. I don't care about that. It's Star Wars is, it's pure cinema. I mean, it's an an experience you cannot get anywhere else. I mean, even with all these expanded universe books and the video games get to it a little more and everything, but, you know, sitting in a theater and watching those images and that 
John Williams score just filling your head. You just go, I can't get this anywhere else. And so many people have tried to do it and failed. And it's just these perfect coalescing of it, of all these ideas and history and myth. And just like, I, this, this, yeah, this pretentious, like, well, I, you, Star Wars is bad because it's big and loud and everybody can like it instead of five people in the upper, upper east side, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I, I am kind of fascinated, particularly when I was uh, approaching this film and doing research for this, for this episode, that I do think that Star Wars, the 1977 film is interesting to look at divorced from what Star Wars, the franchise would become. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so interested in that period in between uh, the release of Star Wars and the release of Empire, because before Empire Strikes Back even exists, I was watching the Blu-ray while we talked about the lack of features does have a making of Star Wars from the time, mm-hmm. you know, from when it came out. And it's so interesting to see what the reception was then, because it was a huge hit then. And it could have been just that it could have been one movie that came out and changed everything. And then the sequels could have been poorly received it could have yeah. it could have been essentially the matrix in a way yeah. you know where, yeah. where it just kind of is and if you watch they interview carrie fisher in the making of um you know young carrie fisher in an arcade uh seemingly having no interest in doing the interview but <laughs> and she's just kind of like yeah i don't know maybe we'll make more and gary kurtz goes yeah we're doing one maybe maybe we'll do another sequel like there's no real thing there and it's so interesting to see that it was already a phenomenon before what we know of as Star Wars. And I think that the M- New Hope, you know, as as it's referred to now, I know a lot of people say that Empire is their favorite and Empire is the best. Nah, New, Hope um, the best. New Hope's the best. Thank you. My, my uh, partner, when we watched them, she didn't love New Hope, loved Empire. I'm also a fan of New Hope because I also think that New Hope kind of because it's writing the rules, it kind of does things without a thought of, oh, well, what would a Star Wars movie be? Like, yeah. I think about, you know, now when these new films come out and they get received, do you have a million people online going, a Star Wars movie wouldn't do this, Star Wars movie wouldn't do that? And I just keep thinking about when you watch that first film, there's moments in it that are so great that would be written off as goofy now because they're bringing a reality to it. Just the the element yeah. of the way that Han or Luke, it's unclear which one, I think, but when they're wearing the Stormtrooper outfits at first and they get out of the ship, the way they get away from being busted is just, they look up at the Imperial who's trying to call them and tap on their helmet like, oh, no service, and that's it. That's all it takes. Yeah. And that is the thing that I think if it was in a film now, they'd be like, that's too goofy for Star Wars. They don't XYZ. They don't blah, 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 you know. I mean, we did see it, whatever, five, four years ago when Last Jedi came out. People don't like saying it anymore. I mean, you know, history is written by the winners, but Empire Strikes Back was kind of given the Last Jedi treatment by people saying, that's not Star Wars. Mm. This is too serious. The hero's lost. Vader's the father. Oh, this is just terrible. It's, it's you know, it's again that, yeah, that period between Star Wars and Empire and, you know, that moment where there's like, uh-oh, maybe this isn't going to be a sustainable thing of the holiday special. There was that brief moment where maybe Star Wars wasn't going to last past that initial uh, worldwide box office record setting. And then, no, they did. And we're still living in uh, George's world. And you know what's crazy about that, Tom? Patrick, I'm sure you could speak to this, too, because, uh, you know, we have similar interests in that regard. But, like, the weird thing is, after the original Star Wars, 
the biggest hits of the cast seem to be C-3PO and R2-D2, who, if you look at stuff from the time, were everywhere. They were on Muppet Show. Uh, they were yeah. on Sesame Street. They had, uh, like, a, a novelty songs and all that. And now, I mean, among Star Wars fans, you don't really necessarily see that same kind of affection for... No. You know, I... My, my theory... My theory is that you didn't necessarily need Anthony Daniels or Kenny Baker to do that. Fair, fair. And, that's, fair and they, uh, you know, they didn't sign a, a, like their likeness away and that kind of thing. And I think that's probably why they were used so much. And it's why you see Kylo Ren with his mask on now or BB-8 on so much stuff. It's because it's not Daisy Ridley and she doesn't need to get the approval over everything. I mean, that's the that's the cynical uh, reality business mind of me saying even why on, that's the case. Even on that note, like, think about... Um, you know, but it's weird that like Darth Vader didn't show up as much or stormtroopers or, or Chewie. Yeah, I mean, think yeah. about, have you, I, I'll ask this now. And Tom, I assume is just going to unplug his headphones for a bit. Cause he hates when I talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patrick, have you been to the promised land? Have you been to galaxy's edge? Oh God. Uh, are, are you asking if I've been to one or are you asking if I've been to both? I, either one. I have not been to either. So I, ask I'm me, curious. Ask have you been separately? Ask me separately. Oh, God damn it. Okay. Uh, have you been to either one of the galaxy's edge? Yes. Have you been to both? Yes. God damn it. <laughs> I, I haven't had a chance to go. When I was in Disneyland, they were still building it. Yeah. Um, we were we were sneaking peeks off of the uh, top of the Mark Twain yeah. riverboat to try and see the rocks. But even when I was there, you know, with uh, they had Star Wars Launch Bay open in, yeah. in Disneyland in the old uh, America Sings Theater yeah. um, where the ghosts live. And uh, I was there and you noticed that, like, the characters people wanted to meet were... Darth Vader or Chewbacca, who were in the first films, like, and you're right, they didn't yeah. have their light signed away either, but it's just so interesting to me, I guess, for whatever reason, in the time since 77, the droid characters have sort of fallen out of favor yeah, in terms of, you know, I mean, they were, they function in this film, I mean, you know, George has talked about, it. he based them on the characters in the Hidden Fortress, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is, I guess, where kurosawa got it from and it's it's interesting that if you look at the reception to the 77 film on its own people were really drawn to these passive characters existing in this world and the action going yeah. on around them and now in the modern day perception of star wars we're much more interested in these active characters these active participants yeah and i well, wonder I do you think that's because uh the shape of films have shifted to be more of an action adventure, uh, you know, explosion, boom, boom kind of world. Whereas back then it wasn't, I don't know, you'd be more likely to go see the talky drama maybe or something like that. And C-3PO and R2-D2 maybe would fit into that more than running around and blowing and shooting people. I don't know. Uh, no, I think you're onto something there because I think there's something, I, the, the charm of the first Star Wars, and this is kind of the thing, and and it is a little bit, I'm Tom's we met, I'm going to touch on theme parks a little bit more, uh. but it is a thing of, it is a thing of why, quite frankly, you don't mind if it's Galaxy's Edge. You could you could go there and spend a couple hours there and not ride either of the rides they have there. Yeah. Yeah. The same way that, like, you know, to bring up a different franchise, uh, you know, you go to Universal. I don't need to ride any of the Harry Potter rides. I'm okay just walking around that area because there is this entire world that you want to immerse yourself in. And I think the first Star Wars... You mentioned, you know, you like the story, but you're not watching it for the story. I agree. It's a standard hero's journey story, that Joseph Campbell story, intentionally. Why mm -hmm. you're watching that first film, especially if you're going to see it when there are no other ones, is 
it's introducing you to a world that you've never seen before. And in that case, C-3PO and R2-D2 are kind of like your Alice falling down the rabbit hole. Or, sure. you know, why why we're drawn to, say, you know, why, to me, and this is going to be a bit off, but, like, why people love Spirited Away so much, even people who can't engage with some of those more abstract Miyazaki films, is they give you one character who you can connect to that is dropped in the middle of this mess and and is like, all right, here's, you see this world through their eyes. Because C-3PO and R2-D2 are launched into Tatooine, because they are there for a lot of this exposition, for people who are watching Star Wars as this strange, fantastical vision of another world mm-hmm. that is either in the future or the past, which is kind of unclear in 77 because the scroll says galaxy, you know, long, long time ago, but the trailers specifically <laughs> said in the future. Uh, which is very weird. I think it's just because the world we're in now is so tech heavy that robot characters don't really interest us anymore. And in this world, where people are going to now lean more towards the alien and things that aren't something you might see in our world in like five years. Uh, so I think you know a big walking dog like Chewbacca is a little more interesting for people to. Uh, wrangle with uh maybe it's a little bit of both what you guys are saying and maybe what i'm saying but i I just feel like they tried so hard with bb8 and he's still he's kind of like a thing people like but i also feel like them being able to make a toy that could do what bb8 does also made it be like yeah kind of not that crazy and you know it's interesting you say that because i think you've got a point in terms of the changing taste because here i mean you know and we're we're not going to touch on the new films too much but i think about with rise of skywalker they had so much Dio merch ready, right? The uh, yeah. Yeah. wheel drive. And he came out, nobody really cared. But then Babu Frick, the little alien, uh, people yeah. lost their minds I mean, for Babu Frick. And there's like minimal yeah. merchandise of Babu Frick. It is insane. That I, it's crazy that I cannot buy a life-size Babu Frick sideshow, you know, statue. It's crazy. Uh, 100 percent i mean you know any other i think any other year that a star wars movie came out that would have been like within three months i would have been able to pre-order it well i think it's interesting too you mentioned the merchandise and i do want to touch on the merchandising of star wars too because it is it's a revolutionary movie not just for the film on screen but the ephemera around it you know and the merchandising around it i mean uh people may know the story may not that there was such a demand for star wars merchandise that uh well i mean we have to acknowledge the fact that lucas uh, Ascent owns the merchandising rights uh, outright. He he renegotiated yes. his deal so that he would have the rights to merchandising. And he selected, when they were making merchandise, he selected Kenner, who were doing these three and three quarter inch figures, which a lot of people seem they've got the more limited articulation instead of the standard dolls that most people would go for. Uh, and Kenner was so desperate to get these things out that uh they and i may have my details wrong but i they pre-sold figures you basically bought an empty box with an iou of we'll send to these these figures later uh and it's so interesting because that changed the way that people looked at merchandise for films and those early star wars figures produced every character under the sun as as connor pointed out on one of your shows actually recently oh no i take that back it was during our interview at CradleCon. uh walrus man they were basically giving you every Mm -hmm. alien in the cantina and they had no name for the weird walrus looking guys. So they just called him Walrus Man. And subsequently, people have tried to give him a Star Wars name and they all just go, no, he's, he's Walrus Man. <laughs> but I think it's interesting. And then you look at by the time you get to Phantom Menace in 99, which is what we all grew up on, 
Uh, they obviously produced merchandise of every single goddamn thing in every single variation. Yeah. And I think we all maybe have some kind of memory of Midnight Madness at Toys R Us. Uh, and I remember my dad came home with three trash bags full of things and just laid them out on the floor oh, and was nice. like, pick what you want. Um, and I picked Jar Jar because uh, I'm good at making choices. But, but yeah. and that a lot of that merch didn't move. And I think that ever since then, they've been kind of licking their wounds and a little more conservative about what they make merch of. Which is another weird thing, because if yeah. you look at the merchandise boom of Star Wars, you could put Star Wars, the original 77 Star Wars, on literally anything. And people bought it. You know, uh, you yeah. know whether it's t-shirts. Or, I mean, there's, there's, I mentioned there's a novelty record of Christmas Among the Stars with, with R2 and C3PO. People... Of course, by Miko, yeah. Uh, the, first, the first appearance on a, a record by John Bon Jovi, I believe. Is that true? I did not know that. Yeah, I believe he plays guitar on it. That is that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, that's going to be my new favorite Bon Jovi song now. Uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I am interested in this this phenomenon. I think we should talk a little bit about particularly the film and and, and the moments in the film um, because it was a film that was always in flux too. I mean, obviously, I, have you, Patrick? I'm assuming you've read George's original Diary of the Wills script that they released. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while. It's been a while, but I read it a while back. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the thing I actually like is the, they released it as a graphic novel. Have you read that? I read that. Yeah, yeah it was pretty cool. It's cool. It's weird. Um, I don't, th I mean, I, I think he's very lucky that, let me word this the right way, that he had other people there for that movie to make it a little more palatable. Because reading that graphic novel, like, it's cool for nerds like us, but I think the general public definitely would not have latched onto it the way that they did with the, the real, you know, version it's, of the movie. It's funny because that graphic novel really does feel like kind of the prequels of just yeah. Yeah. way too big and esoteric and just kind of like cold. Yeah. Where it would have, even in 77, if people hadn't seen anything like this before, like the thing that the, the original Star Wars has, is like, it's so warm and has a humanity to it. And it's, you could grasp it for as far out and weird and big it is. You can grab hold of it and latch onto something where George sometimes uh, aims a little too big and uh, his um, his hunger is a little bigger than his stomach. Yeah, it's not a bad. It's not a bad thing. And when it works, it really works. But, but those um, collaborators really helped. Yeah, it really helped. And I yeah. think that what this movie has too, and why this movie is here. Here's the thing. I mean, I'm not going to say it's necessarily the greatest movie ever made but in a way it's the perfect movie in terms of it has all the elements that you need for a standard classic story and and part of that is that where they've kind of struggled or where people have struggled telling star wars stories after this yeah. is that they either focus and george or others they kind of go oh why don't we do a full thing about the Force and the mythology of the Force and the Jedi? And that's only certain people's bag. Or they do, well, what if there's no Force, no nothing? And that's only certain people's bags. I think about the fact that what you need, when I watch the prequels, and I, I like you, Patrick, I love, I, I do really like the prequels. They, you know, I remember where I was when I was told they were making more Star Wars. You know, I was yeah. also a kid at the time. You know, I was eight or nine years old in 99. Like, that was a big thing for me. But watching them now, what you do realize what you need, if you're going to do a, a story with the Force and the Jedi, you need a Han Solo type to, yeah. you know, he offers that element of, if if you just had a scene, which is Obi-Wan coaching Luke through the Force, and that's all you had, 
you might have a lot of people in the audience checking out, but it's, it helps to have Han Solo walk in and go, what are you talking about, that magic mumbo-jumbo and, and, and doing yeah. all that, the same way that a Han Solo movie isolated from everything else, you're like, that's maybe not the character who leads your film. That's the character who who responds to the events of the film. Yeah, the thing that uh, I'm going to steal his idea because he's not coming on for a Star Wars movie, so I'll I'll tell you Connor's take on this, is that he likes Han Solo movies more than he likes Star Wars movies. That's what he's realized over the years. The movies with Han Solo in it are, are, they're giving you that, you know, window into the world to be like, I don't know, you know, you got the Dana Scully type of like, skeptical about everything. And his fix for the prequels is to make Captain Panaka uh, uh, the Queen's head of security into the Han Solo type. If you had cast him with a Vince Vaughn type, say, in the late 90s, uh, to be like, what are you guys talking about? What are you guys doing? This is crazy. Why are we doing this? You know, like bringing that energy to it, he thinks could have uh, fixed those movies a little bit to make them a little bit more likable and uh, uh feel more like the older movies because they don't really have that character the character who can step outside of it and be like this is crazy that we're in space right now blowing up a ship you know what i mean they need somebody that who's outside of the story basically who really doesn't have any ties to what's really going on but also his character adds to the world we're living in i mean having this low down kind of scumbag who shoots first yeah, sorry, George, he shoots first, um, <laughs> is that, okay, we're living in a world where morality's a little flexible. There isn't no straight up just everything's good and everything's bad. There's an underworld. There's dark stuff going on, but then also, like, maybe these guys are kind of good, and it adds a little, it adds that color you need, because, yeah, you kind of could take Han Solo out of the narrative and just give the big Millennium Falcon moment at the end to, I don't know, Wedge, and it would essentially be the same. But you don't have that, you don't, something that you could just go like, oh, this guy, what's he going to do when this is over? Yeah. And there's there's something to the humanity that Han brings to it when, you know, I mean, there's the great scene when they're at Mos Eisley Cantina and he finishes talking to Obi-Wan and Luke all cocky and confident. And as soon as they walk away, basically turns to Chewie like, oh, thank Christ. We were so screwed. I think the charm of this film, uh, of of the original Star Wars uh, over some of the, the sequels or anything like that, is the fact that what makes this work so well is it never takes the idea of Star Wars seriously. It's allowed to have fun. It lets itself have fun with the goofiness of it all. But it takes the filmmaking seriously. Oh, sure. yeah. And, and that's, I mean, yeah. We can't talk about Star Wars without talking about how it changed how movies were made and how, you know, the visual effects uh, work that they did that were just groundbreaking at the time. Because even with all the tinkering and special edition bullshit we keep getting with each new release of the original trilogy, you can watch those movies and just be wowed by the effects because they haven't aged a, a day. And I think we should we should talk about the special edition because that, uh, I think, is a big part of the story. And I feel like I'm I'm in the minority where I think the majority of the changes, say what you will about going back and changing your own work, I think the majority of the changes in the special edition movies are not bad. I think a lot of them 
you know, fix up the mat lines. It's a lot of the invisible stuff. It's when you become, it's when you start adding the things that change the story or add scenes is when it gets a little wonky. But yeah. I think a lot of the cleaning up of the visual effects is not terrible. It's no, a shame I, that the original versions are not out there, but uh, I don't think the changes are that bad. That's why I kind of think Empire Strikes Back has the best of it, because there's really not much of that story-altering yeah. shit. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, he does kind of... I mean, the Han's shooting first thing is kind of just... At this point, it's almost as iconic as the movie itself of just one of those decisions where you just go, wow, you, you kind of start second guessing. Does he know what makes these movies work or why what makes these characters good? Because you kind of just really changed your character with just one decision. See, here's my take, here's my take on it. Let him do whatever he wants. Who cares? It's fine. <laughs> See, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the issue is... If I may, I think the issue is I know that there were some issues, and I don't know what it is now. But like when the National Film Registry, yeah, I, this is yeah. What I went went to him and we're like we're inducting you know Empire Strikes Back, we're inducting Star Wars. He's like, cool, you're getting the special editions, and they're kind of going. Yeah. Their counterpoint is, we're archivists. This is yes. about history. Like, and to me, it's a matter of I have no problem. Listen, I like Blade Runner. I have that big ass briefcase they put out back when uh you guys remember home video releases used to do weird packaging and stuff i have that briefcase that has all five versions of blade runner listen ridley scott wants to recut blade runner 30 times go to town michael mann wants to make 15 versions of black hat tom will probably watch them you goddamn right yeah but i agree with you patrick it's the fact that it's the original should exist in some form well Here's what I'll say. This is what I have heard, and I'm not naming names. I have heard the original does not exist anymore for Lucasfilm. I have heard they do not have a copy of the original. That uh, I I'm not exaggerating. I want I'm saying this expression completely correctly. That's blowing my mind. I don't I don't know if it's true. That is that's what that is what I have heard. That is fucking with my head to a a great degree. I am... God damn it. Wow. I mean, wow. here's the thing. If they wanted to get a copy, you go pay Harmy $20,000 and you use the despecialized version. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they could, they could very easily get a copy. But it's just it's just the fact that you saying that, like, they just don't... That it, yep. I, I don't... I Again, I have no problem with altering things. Listen, the, the radio cut of E.T. I think is an interesting curio. Sure, but sure. You don't. You don't. Then go. All right. Burn the masters. You know. Yeah. Listen. I. I think I just watched Aliens two weeks ago, and I think that's the director's cut is the better cut of the movie. But I'm glad the fucking Alien box set has the theatrical and the director's cut for each movie because, well, it the original was what came out, so you can't erase people's initial impressions of a movie. You can change it maybe with these director's cuts. Not, you know, I mean, it's not like we're living in the midst of one of the craziest uh, director's cut reveals in fucking modern history. But uh, at least at least we'll still have the majesty of the Whedon cut of Justice League. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I, I I think that there's also something to the fact that we're talking about a piece of history. We're talking about a hugely influential film. I think that. While you can see a preferred version of a movie uh, or the director's preferred cut or anything like that, I do kind of think about the fact that when you're preserving these films or if you're a film historian or you're just a fan of film, you don't just want to see like the director's ideal vision. I kind of push back sometimes 
on the people who like I know people who get so obsessive with you know the restored versions of films because it's the director's original vision and I think at a certain point it becomes such a part of the popular culture that you want to be able to see what people saw because to me I I love the Shaw Brothers kung fu films of the 70s and I welcome a world where we're getting the 4k versions with the original subtitles and everything but I think about the fact that when the people who were influenced by these films, your Quentin Tarantino's, your Robert Rodriguez's, your Rizzas, when they were watching these films, they were crappy dubbed versions that were airing on UPN that changed plot points because of the dialogue changes, you know, and the dubs, like somebody who is somebody's brother is now their best friend. And <laughs> I, you know, to me, if I'm watching that, it's the same way that I think you know, if you're a historian, you're trying to watch, if you watch Pulp Fiction and you hear, you know, the path of the righteous man is set on all sides and you're like, oh, okay, let me go look that up in the Bible. That's not what that says. No, it's a paraphrasing from Street Fighter. The, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Sunny Chiba movie. So yeah. you need that component. And I think that so many filmmakers and so many artists in all different mediums were influenced by the 1977 motion picture Star Wars that to not have that version available, it's not just a matter of like, oh, you know, uh, we don't like George's vision. He can have his, his vision, but for us to be able to trace, well, where did this come from? Where did Battlestar Galactica come from? Where did all these things come from? You need that piece of the puzzle in that evolution of a film from a historical standpoint. For sure. Um, I do think it's it's amazing, though. It it You know, we talked about it's hard to talk about stars. I, it, there is so much to it that I think even now, Tom mentioned the effects uh, still holding up. I feel like even now watching it, there are moments where you can't help but go, how did they do that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And it's such a master class. And, and you know what I was thinking about? I remember when, you know, Phantom Menace was coming out, watching all those. You remember they were doing those behind the scenes things before the film came out, showing you the, the rooms full of green screens and everything. Right? Yeah. And I felt in that moment, like as a kid being like, wow, they're doing that. Like I knew green screen, you know, I think we all went down to like Universal or Disney's MGM Studios and like did that thing where you stand in front of the green screen and they put you into a scene from I Love Lucy or something. But yeah, but to see an entire set made of that and I got to the one thing that I will say is, you know, I, I think that, look, I'm I'm not we're far from any of these anti the sequels people. Uh, I love Last Jedi. I, I I like Force Awakens quite a bit. But the one thing I'll say is I did not get to feel that how did they do that feeling until The Mandalorian, which sure. kind of you watch that making of thing they have on Disney Plus and you see that, you know, the, the digital screen sets. And you it, again, you feel that sense of wonder, you know, and that sense of, wow, this is something. And uh, watching that behind the scenes of the original Star Wars, you still feel impressed by the way they're using models and the fact that this is a movie that gets so praised for all the cutting edge special features and the innovative special effect. And yet things like when Obi-Wan is uh, in the inside the depths of the Death Star trying to shut off the uh, God damn it. I'm forgetting the word now. You guys. Tractor beam. Thank you. Thank you. He's trying to shut off the tractor beam. And you know how they did that effect. Painted glass. Yeah. The, yeah. They used the same kind of special effect that we were just last week talking with uh riley soliner about it's the same effect that charlie chaplin uses in modern times sure 
So it's it's drawing from both old and new. And I think that's really what makes this click is it's just the film is such an understanding of how film got to where it is and then building on that, uh, which is, I think, what makes, like Tom was saying, those effects still hold up. Well, because it knows, you know, when to use the effects. It knows not to use, like, effects or whatever as a crutch the way, you know, I mean, there's an entire run after, like, Jurassic Park and shit of 90s and early 2000s movies just doing CGI when they didn't need to and it's aged like garbage but this movie I mean kind of for the most part like when you really think about it like only almost until the end of the Death Star run a lot of it's just they're on a set they're in the Tunisian desert they're in this just place and then well, Willie, we got it. We need an effect here for the lightsaber or this laser blast, and then you go. It makes it feel a little more tangible and not as I don't know, creatively bankrupt. <laughs> it's almost like, almost in a sense, the way the prequels did it. I mean, as much as you know, there's stuff to like in them, and I know you know you guys have gone on record as liking them more than others. There is that sense of there's too much. There's just too much of this stuff where you didn't need it. And it feels that way. And those movies haven't aged as well visually as the original trilogy for a, a simple reason, you know, just too much. Now, I want to touch on something, which is just go around a little bit before we uh, before we start winding down. I want to touch on because it is a movie of moments, uh, very much so rather than, you know, a movie of story. What are some of the moments that really stick out to you from that film, whether they're big or small? Uh, and I want to start with Patrick, obviously. What are What are some... When you think of Star Wars, what are the moments that really stick out to you? Um, I mean, the big one in in uh, Star Wars always for me was the cantina scene. It was, I think, the thing, I don't know if it was what attracted me to that movie to begin with, but something that I loved growing up was the Universal monster movies mm-hmm. and, like, old, yeah. old horror movies. And I think that it was always crazy. Like, normally in a monster movie, you get one monster. <laughs> Maybe two if you're lucky. Maybe, you know, Wolfman's fighting Dracula or whatever. But in this movie, there's 50. There's 60 of them. And just getting to see that in one spot in a world where you've mostly seen human or humanoid characters up to that point. It's like, oh shit, this really is a different universe. You're getting to see, like, what this world is like for these people. That was always the thing. I broke my special edition New Hope VHS because I used to rewind both the opening with like the making of a special edition thing and the cantina scene so much that it just physically wore out the tape. So that was my big moment. What about you, Tom? Um, Any moment with Chewbacca and especially the moments of Chewbacca with Han. I just love that. Just, just the way they interact and how we never get to hear what Chewie's saying but we get the reactions from Han and we just get these great character moments of Chewie. And, you know, I mean, and then even like it, them playing the space chess where he's just like a little whiny baby and Han's just like, yeah, he's going to rip your goddamn arms off if you don't let him win. Mm-hmm. And Chewie and Chewie feels like, oh, uh, okay, yeah, let him win. And Chewie just leans back with his hands behind his head like, yeah, you're goddamn right, you're going to let me win. Mm-hmm. Um I just, I mean, it's just like we said, those world building, like I've given you this imagination writ large on screen of just, I love this furry little bastard and the way they just get him and just 
portray him. And even in the new ones, you know, we get those moments. Like one of my favorite moments in the new trilogy is when Han dies and Chewie goes apeshit. I, I, that's just, uh, you, you, same with Solo. You, you get those little moments of, oh, how do you know how to fly this thing? 178 years old. You look great. Just those little, I just love Chewie. So give me more Chewie's Disney. I, I will just say for me, the thing that I love about it is there's that one moment and it's the piece of score I love and all that, which is when Luke is stepping out and he's looking at those twin sons and you hear that. It's a moment that no matter what is going on in the film Twitter discourse or anything like that, that moment happens. And I just look at that and the, the colors and the, the score and I'm just like, damn, movies are good. I enjoy movies. Movies are a blast. It just reminds yeah. you of the power of this medium. Um, now, unless there's something else that anybody really wants to touch, and I do want to make sure we talk about uh, a big thing for Star Wars' history, which is the Academy Awards. Star Wars was nominated in 1977 for Best Picture, along with Annie Hall, the winner, Julia, the Goodbye Girl, and The Turning Point. It was nominated for Best Picture and lost to Annie Hall. It lost Best Director to Woody Allen for Annie Hall. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor to Alec Guinness, but lost to Jason Robards for Julia. It lost Best Original Screenplay to Annie Hall, but it won Best Original Score, Best Sound, Best Costume Design, Best Art Direction, Best Editing, and Best Visual Effects. The Fury Road of its day. I was gonna. I was about to make that comparison. It's very Ooh. Fury Road. I'm assuming, if nothing else, that all of us here have also seen Annie Hall. Yeah. Yes. That it is. It is such a fascinating year. I I did watch. Have, have either of you guys seen any of the other Best Picture nominees in that year? Goodbye Girl or Julia or Turning Point? No. Uh, I think I've seen Goodbye Girl. Wait, hang on. Let me confirm that. I believe I've seen Goodbye Girl. Goodbye Girl. Like so, it's a weird thing where Annie Hall and Star Wars. No, are... I, have not, I have not seen Goodbye Girl. I was thinking of uh, the Charles Grodin movie that is similar to that. The Elaine May one. Oh, Clifford. Of course, Clifford. Um, yes, I was of Clifford. <laughs> um, it is so bizarre that year because whether, regardless of what you think of either film or it's, you know, people behind it, Annie Hall and Star Wars represent major moments in the evolution of different genres and in cinema. And then sure. you kind of just have Goodbye Girl, which I think is a very good film, but it's a film. You know, it's just a yeah. movie. And then uh, Julia is an interminable movie and Turning Point uh, weirdly was nominated for 11 Oscars, won none of them and does not exist in home video now. So now, mind you, this is also the year of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Saturday Night Fever. But yeah, I do kind of wonder, you know, I mean, the only movie it seems to lose to that year in any of the things it's nominated for is Annie Hall, with the exception of Alec Guinness losing Best Supporting Actor to Jason Robards for Julia. Uh, which she is kind of, it was, it was that weird thing where like Jason Robards won, I think two or three, uh, you know, he won two, was nominated for the, for basically roles where he's barely in the movie. Cause he had won the previous yeah. year or two years ago for all the president's men. He gets it for this. And I think he's, he's nominated for maybe he doesn't win for Melvin and Howard, which, sure. you know, uh, I'm curious. Are you of the opinion, both of you guys, if you were a voter that year, are you given Star Wars picture? Are you given it director? Are you given it screenplay? Uh, or are, uh, you know, are you splitting it? See, that's weird, man. Um, I would definitely give it director just because of what Lucas was able to do. And yeah. it was all new and he wrangled it and it works so well. Um, picture, 
It's a weird, weird toss up for me. I mean, I, I definitely like Star Wars better than Annie Hall, but I also understand why in the seventies they would give it to Annie Hall. I would probably give it to Star Wars screenplay. And again, it's weird because like I wouldn't give screenplay to Annie Hall to begin with because that's not the movie he wrote. That's a movie he found in the edit. Yeah, I'd give screenplay to Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, think, I think that, yeah. Sir. No, I was going to say, I think I would give it picture just because of, like, it cha- it changed movies. I don't know, you know, it's hard to be, to put yourself in those shoes at that time because maybe you don't see the grand picture of everything changing. You don't know what's coming. You don't know that the special yeah. effects world are going to be totally different from here on out. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe it's hard to see that. I think... I think it deserves one of those three. Whether, yeah. you know, I don't know which one that is necessarily at if if I'm living in 1977, but I think if you look back now, I think it would be picture. I think there's one thing that I, when I think about, you know, the screenplay category in particular, one thing I, I think about is there used to be with the Oscars, there used to be three different categories because you used to have best original screenplay, you used to have best adapted, but you also had best story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that distinction in the Annie Hall Star Wars debate is is very, uh, very clear because, you know, famously, uh, Harrison Ford said to George Lucas, you know, George, you can write these lines, but you don't have to say them. That's not what he said, Mike. What did he say? He said, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. <laughs> I can I be honest I really thought that not only did I get the quote wrong but that you were legit angry with me for getting it wrong um, I mean maybe I may, maybe you, you know who who knows I did I did say when we did our Q&A that at least one person in that call probably finds me a bit too much and you know was that you we don't know um, we don't uh, but oh excuse me I'm wrong it's actually you can type this shit but you sure can't say it <laughs> Sorry. Gotta gotta love Ford. Gotta love him. Yeah. Um but I do think there's something to that because I think that you could, you know, definitely make a case for the dialogue in Annie Hall being superior to, to Star Wars, but there is just something about I don't just want to write Star Wars off as the Joseph Campbell's hero journey because it's it manages to find exactly the right beats at exactly the right time. And the other thing that I think is so great about it is we have seen so many movies try and do the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. And the one thing they get kind of wrong is the timing. I think that so many screenwriters and so many movies, especially now, how many movies do we see where the rejection of the call portion of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey lasts for an entire act of the film. And that's boring. And this movie figures out pretty quick, you know, brilliantly like hey we want you, you know luke you should be a jedi like your father no i'm good and then he finds toasted owen and baru and then he comes around to it and mm-hmm. it managed and you still have the suspense of the rejection of the cult because you have that element in han with him going off and coming back um but you know you you still have uh you, know, you get away with that get away from that rejection of the cult pretty quick which i think is something that you look at all the movies that have tried to be Star Wars or even just movies that tried to use that Star Wars formula of the Campbell's Hero Journey and they just don't quite get the measurements right. You know, this is a... It's weirdly... A, I mean, Star Wars is, is over two hours, but it feels like you're watching an 80-minute movie. 
it is so tight and precise in what it's doing. Oh, yeah. You know, there's thing moves. Yeah. And I just, I think that when talking about screenplay versus story, I think that that's a very, uh, you know, a, a very strong distinction there in those. But I just yeah. want to touch on that. Does anybody have anything else they want to add before we, we start uh, wrapping up? We can't end it without saying, like, Jesus Christ, John Williams brought the yes. fucking... Yeah, true. I mean, it, it, there's, there's, there's a good argument to be made that this movie may not work even like half as well as it does without his music elevating it to mythic status. I mean, it's, it's just unreal work. Yeah. And it's one of the few movies where I think almost every piece of music composed for it is iconic now. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think the last trailer or the second trailer for rise of Skywalker was just them using the Leia's theme. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, you don't need to do much. You just let the man just, throw this on throw this onto the film track and just project it and hear it and you go oh this is the greatest movie ever i get it now i get it (laughs) and it is one of the only films in the national film registry whose score is also in the national recording registry at the library of congress it's so iconic and so fundamental that it's in wow yeah so it shares that distinction as well but no tom you're 100 percent right it is it is definitely not just john williams who is you know, I think Tom and I had this discussion once, uh, you know, off off mic, but about the idea that for us and for people who grew up, you know, whether it's late 80s, early 90s, that era of cinema, seemingly no director's passing will feel like the end of an era quite like the one day passing of John Williams will. Like he so yeah. defines an era of cinema between, you know, Star Wars, Jaws, uh, what have you, like that. there's just there's no denying it. He's the composer. I've I've seen him twice in person, and I'm so happy that I did because I don't you know you truly don't know how much longer you have. He's getting up there, and it's yeah, he is. it's sad to think about. I mean, he's the guy. As much as we can argue about the merits of the prequels, and there are good things in the prequels, but if we're grading things in the prequels, nobody is an A plus except for John Williams because everyone is going to remember Duel of the Fates, just like everyone's going to remember just seeing Star Wars for the first time a long time ago in a galaxy far away fades out, and then, and then you just, John Williams has taken over your life. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll, uh, I mean, it, do you, Patrick, do you have anything you want to say, or just I don't want to? Uh, I mean, there's, here's the thing, there's too much to say. <laughs> you know? I feel like we covered a lot of it. I'm, uh... <laughs> I'm happy that Star Wars exists. (laughs) I think that's a good thing to say. It's just like, imagine the world where it doesn't exist. It, you know, for the most part, I think it makes it a better place. I think there's a lot of stuff maybe more recently that has been a little frustrating to deal with within the Star Wars community. Oh, you mean mean the fact that they shelled Star Wars Detours, 39 completed episodes? That's exactly what I'm talking about. I wish wish that I knew anyone who had seen them and could tell me if they were good or not, but I don't. I don't know anyone who has seen them. It really stinks. You should really uh, try to make friends with someone who has seen at least 13 of the episodes, you know? Like, I, you know, because I would be tempted if I had that kind of hookup that if I was maybe on camera with them, there would be a part of me that was tempted to on air ask them if they could send them to me. And then I thought better of it, you know? That's probably a good idea. Because they don't (laughs) want to get in trouble and they're trying not to send them to a lot of people, hypothetically. 
Hypothetical. But then, it's, but then it seems like their friends, also on camera, keep sending them to people. Yep, and it's very frustrating each time. <laughs> <laughs> that I will say, to, to sort of get closer to having this up, if people are not watching the George Lucas talk show every Sunday, uh, highly recommend it. It is uh, Patrick is suffering a great deal for this show, you know? <laughs> uh, they, they, it's seemingly uh, both Connor and uh, Griffin exist to put him through uh, pain. So don't make yeah. him suffer in vain. I, I at uh, least I at least knew enough that Patrick that you didn't like being on camera, and then I think two weeks ago they forced you to sing that's amore while stirring things in your kitchen in a fake chef's hat. So yeah, yeah, you know. They well, make you here's the thing. Here's the thing. I being on camera in front of an audience is a different thing than being on camera in my living room where I can only see two of my good friends. You know what I mean? Fair. That's fair. It's uh, different. It's different. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to. I do want to thank you so much for for coming on for this, Patrick. I'm I'm so glad. I know I kind of when I first pitched it to you, I pitched it to you in the spur of the moment, uh, off right when we finished our panel. No, I love it. I love it. I'm so curious. Thank you. Well, and and you, we didn't even get to talk, we didn't even get to talk about the PlayStation One game Jedi Power Battles. <laughs> uh, next or or uh, excuse me, or Masters of Terracossi. Or Masters uh, of Terracossi. So many things. I mean, they just re-released a remastered version of Pod Racer. Now, That's Tom, I want to—I just want to jump on what you just said, which is, hey, next year, come on to talk about Jedi Power Battles. And that makes me want to believe that next year we can have Patrick on for, like, one of the other— like, for How Green Was My Valley, and half of it will still be Jedi Power Battles talk. I would, I would truly love to do that so much. <laughs> I mean, I'm writing it down right now. I'm— Great. It's I, on paper. I'll be, I'll be real with you. I don't think we're going to get people jumping for How Green Was My Valley anyway, in particular, so— I will. I've never seen it. I will do. How green is my valley? As long as half of the episode consists of you two buying a PlayStation One and copies of Jedi Power Battle. Patrick, I think it's great that you think both of those things are not sitting in my house right now. Already, they're already here. There's no concern there. We could talk about Kiati Mundi's yellow lightsaber. <laughs> I I pray that we a do this and b that someone at least one person tunes in not because of our show but just like finally someone's talking about my favorite Roddy McDowell movie and then oh, it's yeah. just Kiati Mundi talk. No, we're <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. It's, you told me it's locked in. It's we're we're making it happen. Uh, we're making it. <laughs> <laughs> but really thank you thank you so much for joining us patrick this has been great um uh if you haven't checked it out uh you can watch the george lucas talk show every sunday on on uh planet scum live we're just slowly accruing uh planet scum cast members talking uh, national film registry <laughs> movies so also follow me on twitter you know that's true we need to get patrick uh more followers than the nbc failed sitcom 1600 pen Yep. Which we didn't even touch on that. You got you have been bravely watching uh failed television shows for the last couple months to raise money for charity. Yeah, I mean and it's working. We're almost at a hundred thousand dollars. Uh if this comes out, I don't know when this is coming it's out. Sometime in October, maybe November, because we're building up a backlog early. So you guys will have already done okay. you'll have already done so Studio we'll, Sixty and then um yep. And we probably will have done Muppets tonight. And then uh November, you know, you'll just have to God. wait and see what it is. Got as as the person who keeps making parody intros of these shows as fan art, I got to tell you, I am so mad that I have to build puppets now. <laughs> a very frustrating experience for me. 
in the interim, uh, we were just uh, Kyle and I and Tom were just talking. Uh, you know, before Kyle lost his power due to a Florida hurricane. But we were talking about the way people are gravitating to Star Wars and. Uh, Kyle, Kyle, you mentioned that you, you felt like people were tuning into The Mandalorian a lot more than they were than the new films. And I think part of that is, it's like we were talking about with Patrick, I think that it's the fact that Star Wars as a whole is a spectacle. Uh, and that's not to say that it doesn't have a story, and it's not to say there's not lore that people are interested in. But when people, the reason 1977 Star Wars was so big was that people who wouldn't otherwise go see a sci-fi film were being told, you have to go see this. You will not believe whether you've never seen anything like this. And I remember when Phantom Menace came out, and I was a kid, people were going to see it who didn't go see other Star Wars films or sci-fi or anything like that, you know, because they were saying, you have to go see this. You will not believe what they do with computers. And that happens sometimes where films capture the zeitgeist and you have to see it. Um, you know, and not just Star Wars. The Matrix was like that in 99. Um Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was like that the next year, um, you know, where there was just this sense of you have to see this. You won't believe this. It's a spectacle. And I think that the problem that the sequel films had was the fact that they were only counting on Star Wars fans. There was nothing about the most recent trilogy that got people who hadn't already seen Star Wars to say, like, you have to go see this because blank. And with The Mandalorian, the appeal of it in the same way that, you know, I mean, it, it's now nominated for Best Drama at the Emmys. By the time this episode comes out, people will probably know whether it won or not, which Shot in the Dark, no. But it's nominated for Best Drama at the Emmys. There's something about it where people like, when you see these sets, when you see the special effects, you have not seen this on television before. You have to see it. Whether Even if it's Baby Yoda, like, you you have to see this. Whether or not you like Star Wars, you've got to see this. And I think that the new series and, and kind of how people understand Star Wars is they maybe get a bit too bogged down in the lore and the mythology. And believe me, I love the lore and I love the mythology. I have these expanded universe books. You know, I, I've watched the shows. But you have to convince people why they need to watch it. You know, why even if you don't care about stuff, you've got to go see it. Um, that's why something like Black Panther makes so much money. It's because people who don't care about the Marvel movies are still being told, you've got to go see this. You've never seen this before. And I think that that's an element of the original Star Wars that is maybe underrated when you take it in the scope of the the, the entire franchise, is that original film's a spectacle. That's that's what I was talking about. <laughs> and, and you wanted to start rolling on that. So yeah, I guess the only reason why is because it's it, it made me start thinking about, I think we've all come from different, backgrounds in terms of how we were introduced to star wars and i think it's easy now in hindsight it was a matter of like when you were going to gravitate towards star wars not if um and i sort of always kind of felt that way too but i never really understood where my introduction to star wars began you know a lot of the times i hear these super fans be like well i inherited it from my family then my family watched it watched the originals in theaters and then i i grew up with that I sort of just remember stumbling into it. And I guess for the longest time I was thinking, well, why, why would my dad be watching to, to be clear, we're talking about episode one, the Phantom Menace. So that's my first star Wars. Um, I don't know if it was my dad's first star Wars, but I imagine in a very similar mindset, he sort of kind of through the zeitgeist heard, Oh, you got to look at what's going on with these computers and just took me as his kid because it was like a pg movie i remember one of the first 
scenes because I don't think we've got in. I think we came into the movie theater late, but I was scared shitless of Jar Jar Binks. I remember <laughs> running out of the theater. Uh, I think as as you're you're getting introduced to him on Naboo, and I remember my dad being like, "Look, we'll sit in the very back, and if you're still scared, we'll we'll leave." Now you know, not a big deal. And so we did. We sat in the very back, and uh, I never left. I I was glued to that seat. Jar Jar ended up being my favorite character, and so I guess that story alone. I guess it's funny because if you you tell that as a as a Star Wars fan, oh, you love Jar Jar Binks. It's like the worst thing you could possibly could possibly say like oh man george made this stupid character for children and it worked um how could you, you hey know? i i like um, jar jar binks quite a bit right i i know and so i guess like always in the back of my mind i always knew that my love of of star wars maybe not necessarily obscure per se because i mean jar jar is still like a relatively like newer character but that it was okay to sort of approach your love of star wars in in a different way and so yeah, even growing up with them, uh, and as they were coming out, I always knew that the prequels weren't as well-received or as big of a cultural phenomenon as maybe the original or, uh, or original was, or, or, or even Empire. So I guess that's why I'm one of those Star Wars character like fans that uh, it's all Star Wars. Just because it doesn't work for me doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work for you. But Star Wars is the epitome and the central component of of my love of entertainment and why I love what I love. You know, at a young age I wanted to be an actor because I wanted to be in a Star Wars movie so I could be a Jedi. We talk we talked a little bit about the video games and whenever I had to do some like after school childcare, we had computers and stuff. One of the few video games they had was the Star Wars Episode 1 Pod Racing. You know, we talked a little bit about the history and the original content and accessing these movies, I guess the ownership of these, of these movies and whatnot, and the idea of who owns art. Star Wars has always been at the center of those, of that, of that topic for me, because it's, I'm so passionate about it that I guess as a result of Disney buying it, it, it sort of opened up this floodgates that it's, it's going to, no matter, regardless of whether we want to be, we want it to be or not, Star Wars is going to continue to get milked for, for generations and rather than constantly bitch and moan every time something new comes out that doesn't feel like it did back in in 2001 you'd rather just gravitate and go okay well what does work you know it's a lot of what we're i guess trying to do here is you know rather than saying oh it's not a repeat of what we want to do it's well what 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 influences does it um what does it utilize well what does it um what does it mean to encapsulate or what does it mean to quote unquote feel Star Wars. I don't know if you've watched that Making of Mandalorian series. They put it out on Disney Plus, but I highly recommend it. Yeah, um, great. And it gets into the fact that obviously, like the influences on the Mandalorian were Lone Wolf and Cub. It was finding roots in other media and other stories, you know, and and other films to draw from to create something new in the Star Wars universe instead of what we have kind of seen as a reaction to fan demand or, you know, a minority of fandom, which is looking inward and looking at the Star Wars legacy and what Star Wars means. And I don't need, for me, I don't need things to tell me what Star Wars means because I don't treat Star Wars as a gospel like some of these people do. Like the guys who were just thinking about their childhood in the 80s in their uncle's basement, like watching the VHS tape. I don't need that. I Star Wars is, and this first film is that to a T. This first film is not concerned about what Star Wars means it is using this universe and these ideas as a sandbox to do something 
fun and to play with genre and to play with archetypes. And that's what the Mandalorian is getting right and working for people. And I think that what works with the first Star Wars and what makes it special and why I like New Hope better than Empire, Jedi, any of the prequels is the fact that it is a movie that is just going, all right, we got samurai films and cowboys and XYZ and, and like elements of everything. So there's something for everybody. It's like a three ring circus. Come on in. And what you saw with kind of what happened with the sequel trilogy and all that was it was more of a narrowing down and narrowing down, especially in that last one, too. We're making this for a very particular person, a person that is obsessed with these little details and has a very particular idea of what Star Wars is supposed to be. And the prequels have that problem. I mean, I, I think that especially Attack of the Clones has that problem, but the prequels have that problem, too, which is like it's playing to a very particular idea of what Star Wars is supposed to be. And I think that that is so much more boring than what a Star Wars story can be. And I think that the Mandalorian taps into that. Um, you know, some of the Star Wars video games tap into that to a degree. Um, some of the novels tap into that, too, where it's like there's so many different stories you can be telling in this sandbox. It is an excuse. I mean, look, let's face it. Part of the reason Star Wars works and part of the reason that Star Wars has not been written off or has not been declared problematic in the way that a lot of things have is the fact that George clued into a thing, which is something that sci-fi writers figured out, which is you cannot do old school Alan Quartermain adventure stories anymore. They would be they the way that they write antagonistic characters is very demeaning and very offensive and rightfully called out. Uh, you know, these these kind of very problematic pictures of people. And George realizes with these films that you could use those same formula. You could use that same dynamic of somebody wandering into this particular tribe or something like that and just use the Tuscan Raiders instead or use the Jawas or use these strange creatures that are not actually demeaning any particular real people. And you can still use the dynamics of the old Westerns of the old adventure films, which is why you bump into stuff with even Indiana Jones, where there's stuff in that that you can't, especially Temple of Doom. There are parts that are unwatchable because of the, like, inarguable racism. And Star Wars, while the prequels do dip into that in the showing their hand of which stereotypes they're uh, utilizing. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm about the, the, the Trade Federation. Yeah, and look, it has its problems. I mean, you know, female representation has been a problem in the original Star Wars trilogy, and, and, and certainly. But it does try to be something that, because it exists in this fictional universe, it can it is a safe place to use the storytelling tools we've built up over all this time and it gives you somebody to root for and root against and it allows you to play with certain things i mean let's face it return of the jedi is george's most explicit allegory for the vietnam war um and you can i mean you know i think that what jj abrams and then later specifically ryan johnson does with the first order uh to represent the alt right works well i think that we are seeing that perhaps we were way too hard on George depicting uh, the dissolution of a Senate and giving into fascism. I think he was maybe letting us know something that we should have paid more attention to in those. But I think that Star Wars gives you an opportunity to not worry about the lore and the story and the history and just tell interesting stories in a world that gives you the tools to do whatever you want. And I think that when you get too bogged down in what Star Wars is supposed to be instead of what it could be, it gets very boring. And that's kind of why I love this first film more than the rest. Uh, one thing I was just thinking about too, and I'm not sure it might just be like most answers just 
because we live in the internet age. And this is more, I think, y'all's field anyway. But I sort of think about the way we talk about Star Wars as a franchise and like like comic book and like the comic book as an industry it seems like people are more willing to to let people like touch i guess comic book characters and stuff than they are star wars and i guess i'm curious where that where that stems from i think that comic books have a much smaller audience than movies do more people go see a star wars movie than probably buy every comic put out by one of the major publishers in a given month um they're just a bigger you know it's a bigger audience which means there's a wider net it's an easier medium to consume because you can just watch a movie and go about your, and then go write your angry blog post, whereas comics, you have to go find your comic store, buy your comic XYZ. I do think you have pushback in the comic industry. I do think, I mean, you obviously have the weird racist fanboys who get mad at Miss Marvel and send harassing comments to any female comic book writer uh, because people are bastards. We don't hear about it as much because nobody wants to carry it as much because there's not that much interest. I mean, you know, even in something as niche as uh, as comic strips, Right. I mean, do you think anybody cares about the papers that show up in I mean, the the, the comics that show up in your newspaper? You wouldn't think so. But, I mean, I do. I mean, get yeah. fuzzy. I miss that shit. I look, I, I do. But it's a thing of like even recently, um, I'm going to butcher her name and I apologize. But Bianca Zunis, I believe, is the name. She's a, one of the writers on Six Chicks, which is a syndicated comic strip. And she's a you know, she is, I believe, only the second black female cartoonist to be nationally syndicated. So unfortunately that, that in the age of the internet puts a, a real target on her back from, from uh, creeps. And she did a, a comic tackling. Uh, it was, it was a very compelling comic that it was a, a woman, black woman wearing an, I can't breathe shirt with a, a mask on going out shopping in the time of COVID. And this uh, clueless white woman walking by and saying, Oh, if you can't breathe, take your mask off, you know, biting, but, not exactly, uh, you know, shocking. And yet the amount of hate mail she got for that caused a couple of papers to say we're not carrying this. And that's people getting worked up about, pay, you know, comic strips in their newspaper. So people get real attached to shit and get worked up about shit all the time. When Dan Slott was writing Spider-Man, there was a lot of people getting real up in arms about it going, that's not my Spider-Man. That's not what Spider-Man would do. That's not this. That's not that. You hear it more with Star Wars because it's got a bigger audience and a louder audience. And quite frankly, because of its simplicity and because there's been so few Star Wars movies compared to like a monthly Spider-Man comic, there's been so few Star Wars movies that it's easy for people to consume all of the films and then get really attached to it. And meanwhile, not consume any of the other media in it that might actually resolve their concerns. Uh, I mean, I remember an idea. I I remember a, a day Tom used to have a different podcast and he had me on as a guest. Yes, I did. And talking about Force Awakens. And one of the complaints that got raised about Force Awakens by one of his co-hosts was, oh, you know, uh, C-3PO has the red arm in it, and they never explained that. I'm like, first off, you shouldn't need everything in Star Wars explained to you, because the first Star Wars doesn't explain everything to you. Obi-Wan gets hit with a lightsaber and disappears. We don't give a shit. We're just like, yeah, fine, this is what happens in this world, you know? We don't, it doesn't have to explain everything to us. But then in addition to that, I said, if you want the explanation of why C-3PO's arm is red, there's a comic specifically about that. They said, I shouldn't have to read the comic to get that information. Well, man, you kind of do, though, because you can't, 
you you can't get every single answer in a movie. I was that fan for like as it was coming out and stuff being like I wanted to consume it all. And so it didn't matter that it was in a a comic or I needed to read it in the back of a cereal box. It's like, yeah, I expected that because why else would would Disney buy Star Wars so they could tell multiple different stories within it it, itself? They're not going to tell you everything because they want you to buy literally everything and you will. And it's like my other thing is if you I, I don't like these people who get mad about the fact that a particular type of Star Wars isn't for them, because it is. If you like Star Wars, it's for you. And you need to get over the blocks in you that stop you doing I mean, there was, for many years, one of the best pieces of Star Wars media and Star Wars storytelling aired on Cartoon Network, but because it was animated, people didn't watch it. They thought they were better than it. They're not going to bother. And it's Clone Wars. And now it's the Tom, original like he Clone said, Wars. Well, no, even the new one, Tom, like Tom says, he's watching an episode of Clone Wars every day. It's great storytelling and oh, it's yeah. great Star Wars. You just got to get over this part of yourself that sits down and goes, oh, it's a cartoon. Then it's for kids. It's not for me. And then, man, if you like Star Wars, you like Star Wars. Just just take it in and enjoy it. Like I, I maybe didn't love every of the new Star Wars films. You know, I maybe had some qualms with uh, the Rise of Skywalker and the way it came together. But at the end of the day. I'm not going to be like, oh, this wasn't made for, you know, actually, if you like Star Wars, you like Star Wars. And I think if you get too myopic about what Star Wars is supposed to be, you stop enjoying it. As we always do. What would you guys add to the National Film Registry um, if you had your pick? And and, and we're doing something, you know, it's got to follow the rules. So it has to be something that is at least 10 years old, has to be American. So, uh, you know, we can't put Last Jedi in just yet. So I was thinking about this and I had a different film on this for a long while of I kind of just felt like. It was a thing where, oh, well, if Star Wars is in the registry, then this other sci-fi franchise I like should be in the registry, you know. And I still believe it should be represented, but that was what I had for a while. But then I started thinking about it, and I started thinking about why Star Wars is in the registry. Because they only picked 25 films in this first year. And I find it so interesting that of those 25 films, you only had three that were after the year 1960. And of those, Star Wars was the most recent, only 12-year-old, that it was so undeniable that they didn't have a Spielberg in the registry. They didn't have a Scorsese in the registry. You know, only one Kubrick. Like, there were so many landmark American filmmakers who didn't get in, but they had to give it to Lucas. And I think that's because the undeniable thing is that Star Wars, like you said, changed cinema. It was a landmark thing that it's not just a matter of being in the registry because it's a good movie or anything like that, but because you can't understand how cinema got to where it is now without that movie. You know, if you're only preserving 25 films to kind of give a sense of how did movies get to where they are, then that is a part of the story. And that got me thinking about another, you know, what's something like that? What's a movie that, like Star Wars in 77, is a a landmark moment, even if you couldn't see it then? Because even... In 1977, people didn't know the massive media franchise that Star Wars would turn into, right? They did not know, and even in 89, they could not be, like Tom pointed out when we were talking with Patrick, that in 89, like, they didn't know there was more Star Wars to come. They thought it was just three movies and that was it. And and the droids cartoon and the Ewoks cartoon and Caravan of Courage. So I think that now, 30, you know, 30 years later, when we're looking at the National Film Registry, I needed to find something, I wanted to find something that is the next step in how did we get to where we are? You know, when you're doing the, what's the next, what's another part, a spot on the map of the turn right here of cinema? Um, and regardless of the quality of the film itself, what it starts. 
So to me, I think there's very little argument that for its place in cinema history, Iron Man should be in the National Film Registry. I wouldn't say it's the best film in the MCU or anything like that, but it is such a turning point culturally. Um, you know, I mean, The Dark Knight also comes out that year, and that's a big deal for people taking comic book movies seriously. Uh, and there's certainly other instances of comic book movies that should be in the registry, like Batman 89 and so on and so forth. But in terms of, I think that Iron Man has a similar turning point energy to it as Star Wars, because it just, out of nowhere, a movie that on paper should have failed, you know, with really no name actors in it, kind of like Star Wars had Alec Guinness, but, you know, you didn't really know Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher. And the same way Iron Man was like, okay, it's Robert Downey Jr. Like, your biggest name in this is Terrence Howard. It was, you know, made by John Favreau. It should have bombed. That first trailer looked terrible. No one could have predicted the world and the cinematic landscape that Iron Man created. And yes, it's the one-two punch of that in the dark. Time, but the, the world that Iron Man creates and, and the, the path that this puts Hollywood on, it is not just the next step. Like I said, it, much like Star Wars, it's a turn right here moment. You know, a year later, the president of the United States, uh, who was at that point Barack Obama, uh, which, you know, switching from the Bush years to, to Obama, the transitional point from Bush to Obama being a movie about a weapons manufacturing warmonger who causes chaos in the Middle East, recognizing the fault of his ways and deciding to turn around and go good, felt really powerful in that moment. But the next year, the president of the United States gets out and makes a joke about making Iron Man. That a character that no one gave a crap about before, now the president is talking about making an Iron Man. It changed pop culture. It changed the direction of cinema. And so I think for its historical significance, more than anything else, Iron Man is the movie I would put in the National Film Registry inspired by what we just talked about. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with it, which is funny enough. That was um, the first thing I thought of. That was, I, I thought this might be the one that we were sort of on the same page on. But that's why I, was, I started thinking deeper and wanted to find something else. And I did. I didn't want to pick... Um, any other kind of space opera or any just regular old Joe blockbuster or anything like that. Um, we're still a little too early in the run to start picking shit like Guardians of the Galaxy 1 or 2, which seems like the most recent obvious choices, as are the first two of the Disney Star Wars movies. In the same avenue of the world we're living in now with comic books and comic book cinema being the dominant blockbuster force. and um. Really thinking about how we got here. Now, a lot of people would make the argument it was Superman the movie. Strong argument. I, I wouldn't say they were, you know, completely wrong. I don't agree. Some would say Batman 89. Again, can't disagree with that. Big pop culture phenomenon. One of the biggest movies of all time, even today. Can't say you're wrong. I just disagree. There's, a diff there's another movie got us to this point. More so than those first two. And more so than two movies that get the credit more than it does. It's a movie that, even today, in our newer version of comic book cinema with the MCU, you could still see the fingerprints of this movie in the tone, in the structure, in the way it's just, these these movies are just made. The fact that it's still, almost like Star Wars, you kind of go back to it and go, okay, it might be a little rickety, like, narratively it's kind of simple but the power of it and the influence of it is so strong and undeniable you can't say that it's not important at the very least i'm not going with spider-man i'm not going with x-men yeah. my pick is blade 
what's that? What's that? It appears Alec Gillis, aka Vice Victus, has entered the chat. Yeah, uh, he will be so happy with that wrap up. A wild, uh, a wild Alec Gillis has been found in the woods. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I do think I've, I've said this for a while now, and it seems like it's been a sentiment that's been picked up a lot these days of people actually realizing that it's Blade that got us to this point because Blade came out a year after Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin killed for for a time made people think okay comic book movies are dead we can't do it they tried batman was the only one that was kind of successful but because they were making shit like steel and you know these like nonsense canon films uh marvel movies these things just weren't working and then with the last two batman movies it was dead but a year later a movie that was nothing like the, those Batman movies, nothing like the Superman movies, was more indebted to Hong Kong cinema and horror than what those movies were, comes out and says, no, there is something that can be done differently. You can make it, even if you're not going to do it R-rated like Blade, you don't have to be like what Burton did, what Schumacher did, or what um, Richard Donner did. And again, the movie's a little rickety. I personally think Blade 2 is better as a movie, but it's undeniable. You watch that movie, especially the still, maybe the greatest opening scene in a comic book movie of just the rave and Blade's introduction and then just the world building. Again, like Star Wars, the world building where you just go, wow, the imagination on display to really dive deep into how a vampire underworld would exist in the world. And, uh, and I mean, Wesley Snipes, you know, people talk about Christopher Reeve and Michael Keaton as the iconic comic book characters. And then two, two years later, Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, everyone talks about him. We, we keep skipping Wesley Snipes and how iconic and just game changing that performance was. And again, in an age where we're starting to reckon with Hollywood's whiteness, that the movie that told us these things were viable was a a horror movie action vampire flick starring a black man is kind of crazy so if blade wasn't successful i don't think fox was going to greenlight x-men and sony wasn't going to greenlight spider-man they were trying forever and it just wasn't working and blade gave them this confidence to go we can do this and with those blockbuster hits we hit the ground running and then we could get to a movie like Iron Man, which would really, really change the world we're in right now. Twelve years later, we're still in, we're still living in Tony Stark's shadow. But if it wasn't for the the Daywalker, I think cinema is a lot different than it is today. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Patrick Cotner for joining us. You can watch his show, The George Lucas Talk Show, every Sunday at 8 p.m. on Planet Scum Live on Twitch. And follow him on social media, at Patrick Kotner. Help him achieve his dream of having more followers than the canceled NBC show 1600 Pen. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, 
Tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.